This is The Guardian. WhatsApp. It's the end-to-end encrypted messaging service that will keep your conversations secret. Until you hand those conversations to a journalist, that is. Tens of thousands of Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages sent during the pandemic have been handed to a newspaper. The former health secretary, Matt Hancock, has described the leaking of thousands of his WhatsApp messages, written during the height of the COVID pandemic, as a massive betrayal and breach of trust. And as the Telegraph has drip-fed story after story over the past few days, one thing has become clear from the 100,000 messages. There was a lot of confusion in Downing Street about what following the science actually meant. So today we're asking, what do Matt Hancock's leaked messages tell us about scientific understanding at the heart of government? And what needs to change before the next pandemic hits? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Kit Yates, you're director of the Centre for Mathematical Biology at the University of Bath, and you've written about what we should make of these leaked messages. Now, of course, they're only going to give us a partial picture of what happened at this very chaotic time in the pandemic, but you've been looking at the government's understanding of the maths and statistics in particular. I wonder what strikes you about these messages overall? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that we are only seeing a partial picture of what's emerging from these messages, both because these messages don't cover everything, but also because we're not seeing all of them. But yeah, I've seen some of them which have scared me a little bit in terms of illustrating the scientific or mathematical understanding their abilities to do you know, relatively simple mathematics. For example, there's one set of messages where Boris Johnson has read an article in the Financial Times and he's on a group chat with Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance and he mistakes a ratio for a percentage. And this number is quite an important number. It's what Boris Johnson calls the mortality rate, but actually what we would probably call the case fatality rate. So it's the number of people who die from COVID-19 divided by the number of people who test positive for COVID-19. So Boris Johnson reads this figure in the Financial Times of 0.04 and assumes it's 0.04%, where actually it's just 0.04, it's 4%. So he's, he's out by a factor of 100. He goes on to use this to make a calculation suggesting how many people would die of COVID-19 if everyone in the UK became infected and he finds that only 33,000 people would be expected to die which is less than the number of people who had already died by that point this was August 2020 and he thinks well maybe the, the virus has burned itself out fortunately his scientific advisors Patrick Valance steps in and corrects him but he doesn't show in these messages any sign that he's actually understood the mistake that he's made so it's yeah it's fairly alarming stuff. You can't imagine uh, what it's like for the actual scientific advisors having to deal with someone with immense power with so little understanding. Absolutely. You know, Patrick Valance steps in and said, well, the figure's actually 4%, not 0.04%. And Boris Johnson replies, eh, so what is 0.04 if it's not a percentage? And so, so he, you know, he shows no sign of understanding. Perhaps even more alarmingly, though, is that Johnson's using what he calls the mortality rate, which is actually what's called the case fatality rate. He should be using what's called the infection fatality rate. So the infection fatality rate is the number of people who die divided by the total number of people infected, which obviously isn't the same as the number of people who test positive, especially early on in the pandemic when we're not doing that much testing. And I think, you know, those two things are relatively subtly 
different. And maybe early on in the pandemic, you could understand making that mistake. But again, this was August 2020. This was six months in. And for me, it's sort of indicative of the fact that he's failed to engage in the basic science that you need to understand this pandemic. You also write about a conversation with England's chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, about the potential benefits of herd immunity. Again, Boris Johnson has read an article in The Spectator this time, and he's suggesting that herd immunity might be the way out of the pandemic. Maybe we could just isolate all the vulnerable people and let everyone else go out and get infected. And Chris Whitty this time steps in and tells him, well, firstly, we don't even know if there is long lasting immunity to the virus. So, you know, if you don't get long lasting immunity, then this herd immunity idea is out of the window. And indeed, that seems to be the case with COVID. You get some immunity, but there's no guarantee that you won't get reinfected. People have been infected multiple times. But also this idea that you can just separate out vulnerable people from non-vulnerable people, you know, forgetting about multi-generational households where older people live with younger people. But it was clear even after those conversations in September that he was still interested in this idea, which just really wasn't feasible. From what you've seen of the messages, is there anything else that caught your eye in terms of how the evidence was being interpreted at the time? I think one of the worrying things that we saw that came out over the weekend was this idea that Matt Hancock tried to get rid of one of the advisors on SAGE, Jeremy Farrow, because it seems like Jeremy Farrow was being too outspoken for Matt Hancock's tastes. I think that's really worrying. And I think that actually speaks to the importance of having open scientific communication and, and transparency within SAGE. Early on, SAGE membership was kept secret and the minutes of SAGE weren't being published. And you know, how would we even have known if someone had been fired from SAGE for speaking out? How would we even have known uh, if, if particular scientific information was being ignored by the government because these minutes were not being made public? And I think if you're asking people to dramatically alter their lives, as we did do in March 2020, based on scientific advice, then we should be making that scientific advice available so that people can judge it for themselves, so they can understand it, and so that they can understand whether the government that are asking them to do these things are really following the best scientific advice and practice. You're never going to get like detailed, nuanced conversations on WhatsApp, are you? I mean, perhaps it's not surprising that these sort of snippets of conversation that we're seeing seem rushed and sometimes like quite blunt. So I think WhatsApp has its advantages uh, and its disadvantages. I think uh, we usually use it when we're, you know, sitting watching TV or tapping away doing something else. It's maybe not the best medium to convey nuanced scientific information from from one person to another, especially if we're aware that those people might not have the best scientific understanding in the first place. What we don't know is what's being said in in-person meetings, what's being said on Zoom, in calls. It's also very easy to, to put spin on things when there, when there isn't context in place. So these messages are interesting and insight, but we have to be careful about how much weight we put on them, especially once they've come through the filter of, of the Telegraph who are deciding to put out only certain of these 100,000 messages and not all of them into the public domain. Now, we don't elect our politicians on their mathematics ability. I mean, that's why they rightly rely on expert advisors, as we see them doing in these messages. So, I mean, is it really fair to expect them to have a decent understanding of statistics, particularly at such a chaotic time? 
I feel quite strongly as a mathematician that it's important that that everyone has a good understanding of mathematics. I'm not in the camp where we should, you know, Rishi Sunak's idea of, of keeping everyone in math education till the age of 18 necessarily. But I do think that being numerate in our increasingly quantitative society is incredibly important and particularly so for our leaders. We're, we want leaders to make evidence-based policy and understanding evidence in science typically requires you to be to be numerate not just so that they can understand the science that's being presented to them but perhaps so that they can challenge the science so in march 2020 we had this herd immunity policy where we we didn't take action fast enough in order to slow the spread of the virus and the idea was maybe we'll just let people get infected and then we can get out of this quickly and that was an idea which actually was coming from from some of the scientists on SAGE, but no one in, in government was scientifically literate enough, seemingly, to question that narrative. So it's not just about having people being scientifically literate so that they can understand the science and make good policy, but it's also so that they can question and get the most out of the scientists and make scientifically informed policy. It's interesting because Kate Bingham, who led the you know really successful vaccine task force, has since completely lamented the woeful lack of scientific literacy among MPs here. And I wonder, I mean, you're a scientist. What, what is it about scientists that make, make them not want to go into power? Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't say about that. I don't know whether it's just that um, when you do PP at Oxford, as many of the politicians that have done Sonic and Hancock or classics like Oxford, maybe you just have the, the bluster that's required to be an MP. Maybe part of being an MP is, is about not questioning yourself, whereas I think most scientists would say that they're never certain. They're always questioning their assumptions and their facts. And I think John Maynard Keynes is, is alleged to have said, you know, when the facts change, I change my mind. And what do you do? And part of being a politician is about sticking to your guns and not you turning. And partly that's because politicians get criticised when they change their mind. So in some senses, they're two very diametrically opposed worldviews, if you like. One of them is about being very confident, even if you're wrong, whereas I think science is, is more about always questioning and, and always trying to look for new evidence and being happy about changing your mind and saying, you know, we'll change our policy based on that. So thinking about what happens when the next pandemic strikes, as it surely will, what needs to change? We need to have learned lessons from, from the mistakes that we have made. One of the key ones, I think, is transparency. So doing open science communication, uh, having the minutes of SAGE being published, having the membership published right from the start and ensuring that politicians don't have this sort of overarching control over, over the scientists trying to get them fired. That's incredibly important. I would personally like to see more effort gone into communicating the science to the general public as well. I think it's really important. There's been various studies done, one in particular that I can think of, which showed that people who understand exponential growth better, better adhered to social distancing measures, non-pharmaceutical interventions that requ were required at the start of the pandemic to keep those numbers down. The other thing that we need to do is to, um, is to try and prepare better so you know we did do pandemic preparedness exercises but it seemed that we hadn't either prepared well enough before the pandemic or we weren't ready and i think that we should not just learn from those pandemic preparedness exercises but also learn from things that went wrong in this pandemic and think about how we could do them differently in the next one 
Kit, it's really great to get your take on all of this. Uh, huge thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, Ian. Thanks again to Kit Yates. You can find a link to his article about Matt Hancock's leaked messages on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was Madeline Finlay. The sound design was by Joel Cox. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian.